three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with some of these people. I just, put down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, would you rather? Right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. Hello, namaste, shalom, and welcome to Nervous Habits episode 11. I'm your host, Ricky Rosen. And essentially, this is a podcast about just about everything, ranging from philosophy to neuroscience to biology to dating to fitness and so much more. This week, we will be discussing three incredibly intriguing subjects, which are back to the wonderful world of dating, what are the best first date ideas, and what conversations should you actually be having on date number one, technology and privacy. How worried should you be about the amount of information that Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and all the big tech companies has on you? And finally, how to remember your dreams more easily and how to interpret what they really mean. All that and so much more on this week's episode of Nervous Habits. Guys, if the audio in this pod sounds different than the prior 10 episodes, there is a reason for that. It's actually because we, we have a whole new sound system here at Nervous Habits. We're moving up in the world. Um, rather than use you know, the, the you know, very rudimentary um, recording device <laughs> that um, I had utilized for the beginning of the pod, I, I made a little bit of an investment. So um, hopefully it should be a little bit of a smoother um, sound quality now and hopefully there, there aren't any issues. I know that at various points in episode one and you know in other episodes, it was tough um, to find the right, uh, you know, bass um, and right uh, amplification and gain for my voice. So I'm hoping that that it sounds a lot better now. Um, guys, keep sending those emails to me at nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. Of course, follow us on Instagram at nervoushabitspodcast. I did fall behind on the emails over the last few episodes, so I do want to share a couple that I've received in the last few weeks. There have been, um, you know, quite a few. And because all the episodes of Nervous Habits are available to listen at any time on Spotify or iTunes or Apple Podcasts, some of these emails are in response to episodes from way back. I mean, this is episode 11. Um, you know, folks have written in about episodes 7 and 8 and 9. Um, so I want to I wanna share some of the uh, messages that I received um, in the last uh, week or two. The first email I got um, is, let me just pull it up here. Uh, Denise from Cambridge, and she writes, this was in regards to episode seven. That was the episode on mental illness. Denise wrote in and said, just listened to episode seven, came out great. You and Holly complimented each other really well, and the conversation was candid and deep. The biggest takeaway for me was how society mostly highlights the negatives around mental health disorders, but doesn't necessarily discuss how these can also provide certain benefits to society such as attention to detail and empathy. I think that that could definitely help mental health issues become less uh, stigmatized. So no, no real questions from Denise there, but um, definitely a, a powerful uh, takeaway um, that, that she brings up about how, you know, we're in society, we're told that, uh, you know, mental health disorders can be de- debilitating and disturb your quality of life and cause all these number of issues. But something that I hope that everyone got from the conversation with Holly was there could be, you know, benefits to um, having anxiety or OCD, for example, 
uh, such as becoming more sensitive, more self-aware, more in touch with other people's feelings, you know, more observant, more perceptive. Um, so certainly being mindful of that is uh, significant, and I appreciate the email, Denise. Um, on the topic of episode seven, I also noticed that we had a review recently come in um, from Dr. Jeff Goodman on Apple Podcasts, um, and it looks like Dr. Goodman wrote. Uh, she, uh, Dr. Goodman wrote. I'm one of Holly Rosen's professors. She did a great job highlighting the subjective nature of mental illness. There is no definitive test for it because mental illness is a subjective experience. That's something we discussed. The patient knows best. Thanks, Holly, for speaking about your own anxiety and for underscoring the underutilization of mental health services. I just wish the issue of managed care and the healthcare crisis had been mentioned because I think that has a lot to do with the underutilization mentioned in this episode. So Dr. Goodman, really appreciate um, your your comments um, in that review. Definitely wish we had time to address um, the issues of managed health, excuse me, managed care and health care. Um, I think that to your point, definitely when we look at underdiagnosis and underreporting of um, you know mental health issues, that certainly plays a role. And it's potentially something we could explore in a future episode. I mean, you know, Holly, if, if you're interested in coming back or, you know, if um, – to the listeners, if you want me to explore that in greater detail, definitely something I'm going to be uh, looking at. So, Dr. Goodman, thank you so much for that. Um, that as well. I also got um, an email from Brian G. And Brian G. wrote in and said, uh, can I be on the show? That was, <laughs> that was Brian G.'s uh, email. Brian, um, absolutely. You know, uh, feel free to, if you have um, a specialization or, you know, uh, something you're passionate about, um, you know, level of, of uh, expertise, or um, if you're overly informed in a certain area, would love to kind of engage with you on that. And um, if it's something that I think listeners could learn from and benefit from and um, something I've had experience with or read about, um, I, you know, I, I'd love to kind of chat a little more in depth. We're an open-minded podcast. We're all inclusive. So if, if you have, you know, if you're interested in, um, if you're passionate about something you want to discuss with, with me on the podcast, just give me some more, you know, details, some more background on what specifically you want to talk about. So that, uh, you know, email me, Brian, at nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. And that goes for everyone listening as well. Um, I also got a very long email from uh, Megan G., in response to episode nine, that was the one that I recorded with my friend Jeremy, um, the engineer, or not the engineer, the well, the um, electrical engineer rather, uh, that we did on free will, the passage of time, and, and the best life. Um, so Megan wrote wrote a long email. Um, let me parse through this for uh, for you guys because there are a lot of questions in here. Um, I'm going to respond to as many as I can in the interest of time. So Megan writes uh, again in response to episode nine. I really, really enjoyed this episode. Super thought-provoking. I also appreciated how you made really difficult and nuanced topics easy to follow for anyone. Here are some thoughts that I took away from listening. What do you feel the differences are between uh, decision-making and free will? If someone can brainstorm all possible outcomes of a decision, analyze the pros and cons of each, then make a decision based on personal preference, do they have free will? So before I go on... uh, First of all, Megan, thank you so much for for the kind words. It's um, you know I really appreciate it. Let me let me respond to that point um, first on the difference between decision making and free will, and um, you know if you make a decision based on personal preference, is that free will? Let me respond to that first. 
I think free will, if it exists, would be the conscious processes that lead to a concrete decision. This is something Jeremy and I explored. So free will isn't the decision itself. It's the decision to decide, if that makes sense. So in the example you gave, if someone is able to brainstorm all possible outcomes, you know, the pros, the cons, and then decide, I think that they have prima prima facie free will. On the surface, yes, they're making a reasoned decision based on their agency, but underneath, as we discussed in the episode, there are all those biological and genetic factors at work which are influencing them. So it's it's not really a black and white um, explanation. There's really uh, nuances to it um, that, that Jeremy and I explore, explored. Uh, Megan goes on to write in the email, if free will is non-existent, then people are forced, in quotes, to do terrible things. What are your thoughts on that? Are bad guys and heroes real or a societal construct? And what leads a person towards a particular end of that spectrum? So Megan's hit me with the uh, heavy questions here. I don't know if there's such a thing as a good or bad person. Megan, I think it's it's all relative. I believe that everyone sees himself or herself as a good person. You know, it's it's the fundamental attribution theory in psychology. Um, to you, you know, your actions may seem justified and reasoned and good, but to someone else, it might seem like, you know, you're just being a jerk or, or you're, you're a bad guy. Um, you know, the, the best example of that is if you're, um, you know, a uh, uh, kind of a reckless driver and you're, you know, cutting people off and uh, moving lane to lane, um, swerving all over the place to other people. People would say, wow, like this person's, this person's really rude and inconsiderate and dangerous. But to you, you might say, oh, you know, I'm just late for a doctor's appointment. I'm normally a really safe and attentive and considerate driver. So, you know, to answer your question, I, I don't think there's good or bad. I think everyone sees themselves as a good person. Um, uh, and to answer your question of what leads a person towards a particular end of the spectrum, I think it's 100% nature and nurture. You know, we're a product of our genes and the environment we're raised in. If you look at folks who go on to be mass murderers or terrorists, these are obviously deeply troubled human beings who probably had underlying mental disorders in their DNA, which were brought to the surface. And on top of that, they didn't receive upbringing or guidance or, you know, um, a, a good example among many other things, I feel. Uh, so again, I don't know if, if there's such a thing as, as good or bad. I, I, you know, I, I don't know if this is the answer you want, but I just, I really think it's all relative. Uh, Mega says, and if you don't have free will, how do you choose who to date? Would you just be forced to feel things for certain people? It is possible to love someone and choose not to be with them. So decision-making could potentially override what you physically crave. So I think this is a different topic, which we might get into when we talk about dating um, in a few minutes. I think our decisions on who we date are driven by a combination of subconscious and conscious desires and impulses. We all have a type or preference for who we're physically, you know, mentally, emotionally attracted to. And, you know, Freud would say all men are into women who remind them of their mothers and women are into men who remind them of their fathers. I'm not sure if I believe that, but there are definitely subconscious factors involved, which to me is another indication that we lack free will in who we decide to date. Um, Megan says, also, if everything is planned ahead of time, can people actually fail? Say a really determined person faces hard times and turns to drugs and loses their job or worse, was that predetermined or was it a failure to rise above an adversity? Or what if a fabulous athlete gets into a horrific car accident and is paralyzed? 
Is failure and loss actually considered tragic and disappointing? Or is it something as a society that we need to remove judgment from and blame on predestination? Whew. So I would say that if you subscribe to predestination, there would be no measure of success or failure. Because in many ways, success and failure is about rising above or below your circumstances. And if you had no real agency, if everything was just faded, how could you do that? You know, success and failure, that would be obsolete concepts. Okay, last question for Megan. I thought your observation about prenatal uh, non-existent or prenatal existence was really interesting. I constantly wonder why we can't remember being born. We only remember up to a certain point of our childhood, but there are pictures of us as infants and stories about us. What's up with that? Were we not conscious enough to develop memories? Why does it feel like we suddenly woke up one day? It's actually so funny that you wrote that. I, I feel like this too. Uh, like one day we just woke up and we only remember our lives from that point on when in reality, as you said, we know for a fact that we were infants for years. What my understanding is um, physiologically, you know, our, our brains, specifically the hippocampus responsible for memory and the limbic system responsible for emotion, they're not fully developed for years. So that's why we don't actually remember before a certain point. But it's relative. You know, some people report remembering things when they're two or three. Some people not until, you know, four or five. So it's hard to discern if something is, is a memory that someone experienced or maybe it's like a, a rehashing uh, of a story that someone told you about yourself, like your mom, you know, told you something and then over time uh, you kind of attributed it as a memory, but it wasn't really, if that makes sense. Um, so hope hope that answered that question. Uh, keep up the good work. Um so yeah, I mean, th thank you so much, Megan. Really appreciate it. So, so, so many questions. I hope I answered all of them for you um, as efficiently as I could. Um, thank you guys. Uh, also, Denise, um, Dr. Goodman, Brian, um, and Megan for writing and really appreciate it. And keep those emails coming. Megan set the bar high. Um, you can send me, you know, as many or as few questions as you want, and I'll, I'll do my best to get to it. Uh, nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. Nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. Send me those emails or on Instagram at uh, nervoushabitspodcast. So let's get into dating. I, I've talked a lot about dating in previous episodes. In episode three, um, Option Overload, I talked about why you should be a, a satisficer, not a maximizer, if you remember those concepts. In episode six, I talked about how to meet people in real life instead of on dating apps. And last week in episode 10, I talked about how to make small talk with people in various settings. Now, I'd like to kind of dive into the first date. Let's say, you know, you meet someone online through a dating app or whatever, or you meet them in person, you know, you take my advice, you approach them in a bookstore, um, you know, outside in the park, uh, what have you, and you want to set up a first date. What should you do and what in the world do you talk about the first time that you meet someone? Well, first of all, I think you need to be creative with first date ideas. Grabbing a cup of coffee or a bite to eat is super safe. You know, why not do something fun and random? Some of the best dates I ever went on were at Dave & Buster's Arcade or uh, Geocaching in Central Park, if you guys know what that is. Uh, it's when you, it's like a scavenger hunt um, on your phone or, you know, kayaking um, on, on the lake or the pier. It's also important though that there's, there's a fine line between doing an activity that will occupy you both and doing an activity where you won't be able to talk to the other person. A good example of this is 
a paint and sip. That's like where you guys will paint something. It's like a, an instructional class. You'll paint a sunset and you'll drink wine at the same time. You know, maybe you'll make fun of, tease each other a little bit about your painting skills and you'll get to know each other. So that's like, you know, it, it, the benefit of an activity like that is you're, you're keeping busy. So there's not constant pressure to have that back and forth and back and forth. Whereas if you're sitting at a restaurant or a bar across from each other, it's got to be like, you say something, they say something, you say something. Say So it keeps you guys busy, the pressure is removed, and you have more natural and organic conversation at something like a pain and sip. A bad example of this would be going to the movies. And this is actually like the worst possible date idea. I'm sure a lot of you have done this um, for a first date and regretted it because you can't talk at all during a movie. You know, you're, you're sitting there, maybe you're whispering, hey, what do you think about, about shh, you know what I mean? Like that's not... And if you're like me and you like to talk during movies, maybe the other person gets a little off put by that. So that's that's really not a good idea of that either. But it's, you know, I, I would recommend being sober on a first date. You don't actually need to drink on day one. And I think in New York City, the popular thing to do, the safe thing to do is tell someone, you know, ask someone, hey, you want to grab drinks? That's grab <laughs> grab drinks. That That's the, um, the sentiment. I would say 90% of first dates um, in the city are drink dates because they're safe, right? There's no commitment. If you're not feeling it for whatever reason, you can leave after the first drink. If you like someone, you know, you you can have five drinks, go to a different bar, you know, go to a club, go dancing after, what have you. Um, it's also a good barometer for if you're enjoying the date, right? The waitress comes around, you're finished with the first drink. If the girl says, you know, oh, oh I'd love another one, or the guy says, yeah, I'll, I'll take another round, that's kind of a nice confidence boost. Like, oh, you know, this person likes the date. We're, we're in business. So it makes sense that drink dates are very popular, especially among young people, especially in cities. But in my opinion, you should get to know someone when you're sober, not drunk. I know people who go on three dates with someone and they're drunk on all three. And then, or I mean, I'm not drunk, maybe buzzed, uh, you know, tipsy. And then eventually they go on their fourth date with the person sober and they realize their personalities just aren't compatible. And, and you're left wondering, how did I not catch that? How did, you know, how did it seem like such a great first, second, third date? And now it's, this person's bland. This person doesn't, doesn't have a lot of interesting things to say. There's no chemistry. The conversation's forced. And alcohol, the reason for that is alcohol kind of clouds the entire getting to know you process. You know, back when I did the discussion of alcohol in episode eight, I talked about how you can't be drunk forever and eventually you need to see the world through a sober lens. So yeah, you know, you can get a drink or two on the first date, but I I think when you're getting to know someone on the first few times you meet them, it would behoove you not to meet them or at least converse with them sober. And along those lines, I also think you need to screen someone before you go out with him or, or her. Let's say you meet someone from a dating app and you're sending three or four messages back and forth and then you decide, you know, you want to meet for dinner. At that point, you have no idea what the person's like. You, I mean, you, don't, you know nothing about them. They're completely blank canvas. Maybe you know they like Marvel mo- uh, movies and they like sushi. Um, it's, I mean, and you know, maybe you know what they look like and you're forming conscious or subconscious uh, you know, generalizations about them from that. But you're not screening them, so you don't know if there's really compatibility. You don't know if you're going to be wasting your time. So why not 
exchange numbers and text for a few days. Or better yet, something that um, Holly, who came on the podcast, my sister, uh, recommended to me is why not kind of, you know, FaceTime someone before you meet with them. She That's something that, that, um, uh, that, that she recommended. That way, number one, you lower the chances of getting catfished, which as I mentioned in uh, an earlier episode is a real problem when people present, you know, curate a different identity on an app. So you lower the chance of being catfished. Number two, you see if the other person can actually hold a conversation, right? Like when you're texting and it's very calculated, they could, you could have someone who's a complete dud, who's, who's not, you know, witty, not sharp, but they have like a friend who's charming and funny and their friend is writing all their messages for them. And then when, you know, you meet them in person, this person can't, can't put a, uh, you know, can't think of a joke if you give them 20 minutes. I mean, so you see if the other person can hold a conversation. And number three, you see if there's chemistry. Obviously, it's going to be different in person, but I don't know about you guys. You, I think you can tell that kind of thing from, from a FaceTime rapport. You know, dating is a big investment of your time and your money, especially for men. Um, I mean, okay, it, it's it's a big investment of time and money for both people, but from the financial point, um, it's it's an enormous investment for men who, uh, you know, end up end up paying uh, for, you know, if you're going to dinner or drinks, what have you. So I urge you guys to screen one another before you go out, um, you know, and, and it's be mindful of those red flags. Be mindful if, if someone's doing something that just rubs you the wrong way. So you know ahead of time and you save yourself the trouble of, you know, going on a date that might suck. So once you're on the date, what what questions do you ask? How do you actually make the most of your time in getting to know someone uh, as best as possible? First of all, a couple uh, rudimentary rules for dates. Number one, any date, not just date one, cell phones should be turned off. They should be either in your pockets or in your bags. They should never be on the table, even if they're flipped upside down. It, that That is a huge pet peeve of mine. If you're sitting with someone, their phone is, is flipped you know, facing up and you're talking, you're looking them in the eyes and every moment the screen is either lighting up or, or vibrating and you can just tell the other person is thinking about it or it's in the, you know, the back of their mind. Flipped upside down better is, but, but I mean, there's research that's been done that even if phones are flipped upside down, even the presence of a cell phone within someone's eyesight can lower the quality of in-person conversation. I mean, there was this one study, guys, where they had 200 participants broken up into groups of two. And each couple was assigned to sit down in a coffee shop and discuss a meaningful topic or discuss something you know trivial and mundane. And the researchers observed their nonverbal behavior and recorded um, whether their cell phone was on the table or whether it was off the table and in their bag or in their pocket. And afterwards, they had the participants respond to statements to measure how well they connected with their partner on this you know this quick coffee date. And the results, guys, the results were mind blowing. If either participant placed a cell phone on the table or held it in their hand during the course of the 10-minute conversation, the quality of the conversation was rated to be significantly less fulfilling compared with conversations that took place in the absence of mobile devices. So what does that tell you? Even having a cell phone within your eyesight is going to make a huge difference. So put your phones away on the date, okay? Don't, Don't pull your phone out of your pocket halfway through the date. To you know, check if you check the time. I mean, look, if wear a watch or find a clock in the room if you're that concerned about time, it can be incredibly offensive to be on the other end of that. You know, even if it's it's 
9.30, 10 at night, and the other person just wants to know if it's getting late. If you're having a really enjoyable date and an interesting conversation, the other person just leans over and tries to subtly, you know, sneak a look at their phone. Like, the, look, come on. Like, we all notice that, and it's just not the best feeling. You know, either wear a watch or um, or find a clock in the room or something, or just don't worry about the time. I mean, you know, you, we're smart enough to know if an hour has gone by, if four hours have gone by. I don't think you really have to. Uh, but no phones, okay? No phones. That's that's the number one rule for the first date. And on that note, you know, you want to give the other person your time and attention. So don't have your eyes wandering around the place like Charlie seeing the chocolate factory for the first time, staring at the decor, the artwork on the walls. And certainly don't be overly invested in the people around you. You know, people watching is fun to do when you're on your own or you're sitting in the park or maybe if you've known someone a long time. But um you don't want to be more invested in the PDA couple at the bar than you are in your date. All people, both men and women, love attention, so make sure that you're giving enough of it. And attention doesn't even just mean with words. You know, I mentioned eye contact. Body language is huge. Um, having you know an open uh, kind of uh, sitting position, uh, facing them, uh, making sure you know you're you're uh, you're staring like straight ahead you're not like slouched your chin isn't down um, just positive body language and that'll also project confidence so that's good as well getting back to my to my point about first date conversation what questions um, should you ask you know how do you best get to know someone well I'm kind of old-fashioned so I actually think that on a first date women should do 70 to 80 percent of the talking I think it's the man's um, you know, role at least early on to to listen, to ask thoughtful questions, to show interest, um, and to really get a sense for you know who the woman is, and and really reciprocate. If the woman has questions for the man, uh, make sure that you know the conversation is is balanced, uh, but definitely give the woman the chance to to do a lot of the talking. And if you're a woman and you're a little more shy, a little more introverted, then that, you know, doesn't necessarily need to be true. You can ask thoughtful questions and really shift the conversation ball um, back to the back to the man. And that's a concept I talked about in the small talk segment, shifting the conversation ball back and forth. Um, that's that's gonna be really important on a first date as well. In terms of what questions to ask, I am a firm believer in icebreakers. I think dates can feel very formulaic and almost akin to a job interview if you always follow the same set of 10 questions, right? Like, um, what do you do for work? Where did you grow up? Where'd you go to college? Do you have any siblings? I mean, come on, you're not going to connect with someone if those are the kinds of questions you're asking. You know, when you do that, you're more like a receptionist at a medical office getting intake information for your first visit than someone trying to make a genuine romantic connection. There's nothing romantic about asking someone, what do you do for work? Oh, you're a you're a consultant. You're a banker, huh? Cool. Oh, um, I'm a you know I'm a supervisor at uh, an accounting firm. Oh, cool. So what can you ask instead? Because that that conversation is very very dry. The time will go by extraordinarily slowly. What else can you ask? You want to start light. I definitely wouldn't dive in and immediately start asking them if. Uh, if they, you know, I wouldn't start ask, start the conversation by saying, if you could have a conversation with God, what would you ask him? Right? Like I would absolutely start light. A good question to ask might be, what's your favorite, what was your favorite TV show when you were a child? You get to know the person's likes and dislikes right off the bat. Um, it's a springboard towards additional conversation. 
And it's a cute and quirky question to ask, let's face it. And when I say springboard to conversation, I think that good conversations are organic and natural. A forced, inorganic, contrived conversation is that checklist that I just mentioned. Where are you from? Where'd you go to college? Um, tell me your story. Walk me through your life. It's, it's literally a job interview where you have your resume out and, and the person says, walk me through your... A good conversation is unpredictable. Oh, what was your favorite childhood TV show? Wow, SpongeBob SquarePants. I used to, I used to, you know, quote that with my friends in the cafeteria. Um, oh man, I missed the cafeteria. Like, what, remember, like recess. Like, oh, like you know, I, I love those like crunchy Fritos. I like, I don't know. I, it's the the point is, you, you can't plan it out in your head in advance. It's just going to go any which way, and you have to go with it. And those conversations are enjoyable. So, um, start light. For example, what's your favorite childhood TV show? You can also ask where their favorite place they've traveled has been. What was the last great meal that you cooked? Um, you know, you don't have to use these questions per se, but the important takeaway is not to fall into the trap of asking those formulaic getting to know you questions, but instead to be creative and to look for common ground with thoughtful questions about their preferences. The other stuff will come. Trust me. If it's a great first date, you can ask where they grew up or what their parents do on the second date or on the phone with them when you're texting them. Or maybe if you screen them ahead of time, you already know what they do um, and you already know you know where they grew up or about their siblings or their pets, so you won't even have to ask. But for the other person, you guys, it's going to be refreshing for them to go out with someone who doesn't go down the clipboard asking the same 10 questions as every other guy or girl. I do want to say you want to be light and goofy with the questions for sure, but don't be afraid to ask thought-provoking, profound questions too. As I said, not at first, but over time, you know, as you get to know them, you have that rapport, just hit them with a question that's going to make them think. Ask them, you know, what would you do with your life if you had $100 million in the bank? Or if they've ever thought about what they want out of life? You know, the, the broad, big-picture goals, their, their hopes and dreams. Yeah, these are scary questions to think about. So, as I said, I wouldn't hit it, hit them with it as soon as you shake hands and place your drink orders. But it can be nice after playfully talking about, you know, your favorite meme accounts to follow on Instagram to then try to get to know them on a more serious level. Now, that being said, there are a few topics that I firmly believe you should never discuss on a first date because they're either deeply personal or socially taboo. Number one, I do not think you should be talking about politics on the first date. And that, I, I don't think there's any exception to that. Even if the person <laughs> works for the government um, or the person's a politician, I just don't think you should do it. Every date that I've had where the person has went on a rant about the Affordable Care Act or Supreme Court appointments has not ended well, regardless of what your politics are. And, you know, that also goes along with controversial social issues like legalization of drugs or, or gun control. It, it's just, I, I feel like you're only inviting um, problems there. You're only inviting, uh, you know, personal clashes and feelings getting hurt and di disagreements that aren't healthy, at least not in the beginning. I think it's great when you know someone really well to engage in that respectful discourse as we've spoken about many times in the past and to you know bring up your opinion even if it's a differing one 
educate them and, and be educated, learn and listen. But that's not something you should be doing before you get to know them and before you've established that rapport. So no politics, um, no social issues. You probably shouldn't talk about religion or faith on the first date either unless you met the person through a religious-based organization. And definitely don't bring up baggage on the first date. This is another huge personal pet peeve, guys. If it's the first time you're meeting someone and you literally have hundreds of thousands of things you could be talking about and they're choosing to spend that time talking about their ex-boyfriend or their personal, excuse me, their previous relationships, to me, that is a massive red flag. That it just, I mean, it, <laughs> again, it's another one of those things that you, you'll find out in time, you'll, you'll get to know them, you'll learn. But to me, first dates are really about establishing that chemistry, seeing if there's a connection and you're not doing yourself any any favors by rehashing the past, um, by shitting on your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend, by sh- sharing overly personal details about the relationship. So do not bring up baggage on the first date. How long should the first date be? That's another very interesting question. It really should not be that long. Two hours is actually a perfect window. You don't want it to be too short that you don't have a chance to, to connect, that you might not want to see the other person again. But if it's too long, it could be kind of overkill. Uh, you want to end on a high note, right? Like if there's still witty banter, banter and, and chemistry, end the date right there. Don't you know drag it out for another two hours until you're lethargic and running out of things to say. Because in psychology, they talk about the primacy and recency effect. We're more likely to remember the first and last items in a sequence. So if you have a, a three-hour date, what the person's going to walk away with is the first, the beginning of the date, the first you know thing you said or did, and the last, the ending of the date, the last thing you said or did. So make sure the date ends on a high note. Um, and that's something if you guys watch Seinfeld, you guys know I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. George Costanza always talks about that, about how at his office at work, um, sometimes he'll make a joke, uh, at, you know, really funny joke. People will laugh. But then someone else will make a joke, or or he'll he'll flub later in the meeting. So eventually, what he does is whenever whenever he uh, whenever he makes a really good joke at his job uh, during a meeting, he just starts leaving the room and says, "Oh, that's it for me. I'm done. I'm out." Uh, to, to end uh, end on a high note, so people remember that. So that's that's important as well. Make sure the date isn't too long. Um, two hours is a really good length, uh, and make sure it's it's ending on a high note. And one last note on dating uh, that I wanted to bring up with you guys. There was an interesting article in the New York Times a year or two ago. The article was uh, called The 36 Questions That Lead to Love. And this was a very interesting thought experiment. So the, the psychologist Arthur Aron explored whether intimacy between two strangers could be accelerated by having them ask each other a specific series of personal questions. So there's 36 questions in the study, and they're broken up into three sets. And each set is intended to be more intense, more probing than the previous set, if that makes sense. The idea that this psychologist Aaron uh, had was that mutual vulnerability fosters closeness. So allowing someone to be vulnerable with another person can be difficult. This exercise kind of forces the issue and accelerates the getting to know you process. Um, so essentially you and, you know, a a guy or a girl will sit together for a few hours and you'll go through these 36 questions. Um, 
And again, there's three sets. Let me just, let me hit you with a couple of these um, just so you know what I'm talking about. So like in set one, you would ask them, uh, given the choice of anyone in the world, whom would you want as a dinner a dinner guest? When did you last sing to yourself? When did you last sing to someone else? Do you have a secret hunch about how you will die? So that's set one. Set two, getting more intense. Um, what is your most treasured memory? What is your most terrible memory? What roles do love and affection play in your life? Is there something you've dreamed of doing for a long time? Why haven't you done it? And then set three, the most intense questions. When did you last cry in front of another person? Tell your partner something that you like about them already. If you were to die this evening with no opportunity to communicate with anyone, what would you most regret not having told someone? Why haven't you told them yet? Of all the people in your family, whose death would you find most disturbing and why? So these are heavy, heavy questions. And broken up into three sets, set one, set two, set three, increasingly difficult. So you ask the person over a few hours uh, all the questions from the sets. And then at the end of these 36 questions, guys, you have to stare into the other person's eyes for four minutes. Just completely silent, can't look away, just looking into someone else's eyes for 240 long, excruciating seconds. So Aaron actually implemented this study. Um, and you can read about it more um, on the, the New York Times uh, on the website, the 36 questions that lead to, lead to love. Um, I'm going to place the, the link in the details section, but it's definitely something to think about. I'm not sure if you should actually implement if you should give this a try uh it can be overwhelming that is all i will say um i i may have attempted this with someone before just in the spirit of experimentation i am an adventurer i am you know someone who i like to think i'm open-minded i'll try new things so i might have done this before i have a friend who might have done this before let's just say in all cases Neither of us were able to complete the 36 questions. And in both cases, it got very weird very quickly and did not end well. But in the spirit of leaning into the discomfort, like I always say, I gave it a shot. Um, so it, it, is, it is interesting to think about, you know, whether or not you could uh, fall in love with or not, not fall in love, but really um, orchestrate a genuine connection by accelerating vulnerability like that. So that's the 36 questions that lead to love. A couple takeaways just to make sure uh, we got everything in the dating segment. Be creative with first aid ideas. You know, uh, take the other person on an activity to keep you occupied to really generate that natural conversation. You don't need to be drunk on date one. You can remove alcohol from the equation. Make sure you don't have your phones out on the date. Uh, you have great body language. Eye contact is important. Uh, ask icebreaker fun questions to get to know them, like their favorite childhood TV show or the best place they've been. Uh, and of course, don't mention the baggage, the politics, or the uh, the religion. Um, and the 36 questions that lead to love might be something interesting to explore. 
I want to shift to technology now, uh, and this is a topic we've disc- we've explored at length over you know the last um, eleven episodes, and I think that a lot of people are aware that the big tech companies, uh, the big four: Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook. Is is there an acronym? Affeg. Um, I think people are aware that they have our information, you know, but how much do they really have? Um, and whenever you have an app, let's say you have an app that uses Instagram to, to edit your photos or um, an, an app that needs your location through Facebook to give you directions. If you open the app, it will give you like a screen that says allow or decline um, this application t- to access your data from Facebook. And you usually click allow. You don't really think twice about it. Yeah, whatever. I got to like, come on. We got to go. We got to go. I want instant gratification. I want what I need. I want it now. But when you click allow, I want you guys to understand how much data you might be uh, enabling other companies, third-party companies to have on you. Because these companies have everything. They have everything, uh, and it's it's a little scary if you value your privacy to really imbibe what how little privacy you truly have by using these uh, these applications. I want I want to focus on Google for a moment because most people rely on Google for everything. You know, there's Google Maps for directions, Google Translate for languages, Google Flights for plane tickets, Google Books for reading, Google Play for music, Googling restaurant recommendations and movie reviews and companies. Hell, you've probably Googled yourself many times. But what you might not know is every time you Google something, you are creating a digital footprint that Google has on you forever. Anytime you use their servers, their services, even if you're in incognito mode, um, since most of you have been Googling for upwards of a decade, I'm trying to think how long, because uh, I'm I'm 26, so I've probably been Googling for about uh, 15, I mean, I only started using the computer when I was like uh, 12, 13, so I've probably been Googling like 13, 14 years, and Google and Gmail, G- I mean, just the Google umbrella has an awful lot of data on you. According to an article by The Guardian, you you can download all the data that Google has on you. They do make that possible if you wanted to. Uh, but I requested to download it. I mean, you just this, this sounds a little meta, but you can Google how to download your data through Google <laughs> and find the link. You can download it, but the file is big. The file is like six or seven gigabytes, right? Like that is essentially an entire flash drive. Um, the, the article by the Guardian says, says that six gigs is roughly three million Word documents. So no one is actually going to download the, their data from Google. And even if you could, I don't even think you have the programs to open up the data because it's all different file formats. So Google may very well be calling our bluff. Who knows? I, maybe someone out there has tried to download their data through Google um, or you know what have you. But Google stores an awful lot of information about us. Google stores your location. Uh, every time you turn on your phone, you can actually see a timeline of where you've been from the very first day you started Google. Uh, you you can access that um, through, I think, like Google Maps or Google uh, Google Location um, on your smartphone. Google also knows, as I mentioned, everything you've searched and deleted it. Even if you delete your search history, your phone history on a device, it might still have data saved from other devices. Uh, 
Google knows all the apps that you use, the extensions. That's as I mentioned, when you um, when you open a third-party app because you're editing photos or you're trying to access um, directions or, or something like that, uh, Google will um, you know transfer over some of that data as long as you allow it. So they're going to know how often you use those apps, where you use them, and who you use them to interact with. They know who you're talking to on Facebook, what countries you're speaking with. I mean, it's there is no limit to the information that they're getting off of you. Google also owns YouTube which means Google has all of your YouTube history. They know if you know, you're know you trying to pop a pimple on your face by yourself or you're trying to uh, bake a, a carrot cake uh, by yourself or you're trying to learn how to dance. Um, er- everything they have on you. I mean, it's not only is there no privacy, there's, there's no expectation of not being humiliated by these, these Google overlords and what Google does and what these other companies do, especially Amazon, is they use this information to create an advertisement profile of you. And they base that profile on your location, your gender, your your age, your hobbies, your career, your interests, your religion, your relationship status, your background, um, your weight, your fitness goals, your income. They create this algorithm. They're essentially funneling all of this data about you into a profile, creating a virtual self. And then they're selling that to advertisers in order to generate revenue, in order to show you ads that you might use or, you know, ads for things you might buy. So that's why if you're on Google and you're searching for uh, watches or you're searching for uh, dumbbells or fitness equipment, you're going to go on YouTube and in recommended videos, you're going to, you know, see a recommended video for how to gain 10 pounds in muscle mass or how to uh, you know use supplements properly, or you know you might go on Amazon and see uh, what are the best you know top watches, top jewelry. Um, it's what happens is these these tech companies share information because they all have the same goals of of raising revenue and of pitching you products that you're more likely to buy. And I mean. I'm sure you guys have had that experience where, say, for instance, uh, you're like me and you have sisters and you buy your sisters um, some yoga pants or something or a dress. A week or a month later, you're going to start seeing recommended for you on Amazon uh, Lululemon pants or express dress. And I don't know about you guys. I'm, I'm, I'm a man. I don't wear – no judgment if you do, but I don't wear a dress. I don't wear yoga pants. But – it's recommended to me because Amazon and Google have imported this information, this this purchase history, this search history into an algorithm, generated an advertisement profile, and that is now a part of what my identity is online. And so Google and Amazon have all this information on what we've searched and what we've purchased, and they're using it and they're manipulating it to try to amplify their bottom line. I'm sure a lot of you know about this and a lot of you are also mindful of Facebook's information scheme or not maybe not a scheme but the, the information that Facebook has on us. And it to be honest with you if you're worried about Google you should be even more worried about Facebook and I know Facebook has received a lot of press for this uh, but it's re- it's it's really sh- it's shocking. And when you create a profile on one of these websites Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, there is probably about 20, 30 pages of a terms of service agreement that most people don't read. And could you blame them? I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. You just scroll to the bottom and you check it. But 
if you did read that, if you did a control find on data or privacy or whatever, I, I actually haven't done that, but uh, it may very well be the case that they're not disclosing all, all of the, the data that they have on us. And that might be why they're uh, so vulnerable to uh, to litigation. You know, people have brought suits against them for this very reason. Facebook has so much information on us. They not only have your profile, uh, your photos and videos and public and private posts, but they have through Messenger every single message you've ever sent or received on your Facebook account. In addition to the ads that you're clicking on, like I mentioned with Google and Amazon. So they know your likes and your dislikes and your preferences, but they also know who you are and your identity through through the messages, the personal messages that you're sending. And like Google, because of third-party applications, they're also collecting data that tracks your location, that tracks applications you've installed, that tracks history, when you're using them, what type time of day you're most likely to use them, what you're using them for, your contacts, your email, your, your calendar, your messages, games you play, your music, your search history, radio stations. I mean, it's limitless because people are so dependent on these applications today for everything to be like a one-size-fit-all universal thing that, I mean, think think about it. Everything is being funneled through Facebook as in addition to Google uh, and Amazon as well. So it's important to, to be mind. I mean, I have friends who have reacted to this by deleting their Facebook account. By I, I have friends who... <laughs> Don't use Messenger anymore. They've switched to a platform called Discord because we have an inside joke. Uh, if we send like a message in the chat, we'll put like a winky face and say like, "Oh, you know, hey, hey, Mark, uh, Mark Zucker was wa- watching us." And I know it's um, it's it's facetious to say that, but there is some truth to the fact that you you have no expectation of privacy when you're sending those messages, and you shouldn't think that you know it's just you guys in the chat because there are moderators, so to speak, who are are amalgating all of your data. And as I said, um, creating a profile of you and selling it to, adver- to advertising companies, selling it to, to companies uh, to, to advertise to you because you fit into their target demographic. Um, so it's, it's, it's really important to be, to be mindful of this. And then make it a reasoned decision if you want to use the applications less, if you want to uh, reduce the amount of information that you're providing. Personally, if we think about technological reform, I think the first thing that these tech companies should should do and be responsible for is being better communicators on what their roles are, which means reducing the esoteric language in the terms of service. Give us a one-page terms of service that says like, or or even like a TLDR, too long, do, do not read version of what information you guys have on us, what you plan to do with this information, who you're selling this information to, who you're sharing this, because... Even if they say that now, which they very well might, it's it's not pragmatic to expect people to be reading you know thirty pages for each uh, application that they use. So that that is certainly important to to recognize uh, is who who you know they need to to share who they are uh, selling our information to because we we own our information. If you think about who at the end of the day, like like what what we're responsible for outside of our material possessions. It's it's our it's our data. I mean, a lot of people would argue the cell phone is an extension of our personality. So I think we have every right to know where that information is going. So be be mindful of that. And another thing I want to touch on briefly is webcams. Because all of our laptops are equipped with uh, unless you have like one of the 
old-fashioned Dell or netbook computers. They, a lot of them have built-in web cameras. And what you see is more and more of these high-profile executives and celebrities like Mark Zuckerberg, for, for example, tape up their webcams. And to me, that's a, that's a little bit suspicious. Uh, and it leads me to believe, and, and others have, have ruminated on this as well, that Facebook and some of these companies may be able to access what's the audio and video on our webcams, either overtly or, um, or subtly, even when we're not using them. Obviously, for folks out there who are hackers, who have access to the dark web, they can access this any time, I presume. But it leads me to believe that there's a chance that Facebook and Apple and Amazon and Google may be able to tap into our webcams even when we're not using them. It's like if you guys have read 1984, which is one of my all-time favorite books, Big Brother is always watching you through the telescreen. So all of my friends will know that I have a, a red smiley face sticker taped up over my webcam. Uh, and I think that some of you guys um, might be interested in the same kind of thing, much like uh, Mark Zuckerberg and, and other prominent people who have done it. You can actually purchase. There's like a whole, there's like a sliding webcam cover that you <laughs> that you can buy um, on Amazon, believe it or not, for like 10, 12 bucks. So there's like a business off of this. But as I said, I mean, you know, is it paranoia? Perhaps. Is it something that you should be aware of? I mean, I think, you know, you need to take any and all precautions. Um, so certainly, you know, treat your, your, your data and your privacy like uh, like it's something to be pr protected. I mean, it's. I think James Comey uh, said something recently that he he you know he has a piece of tape over his his laptop. Obviously, he's a little more high profile, has a little bit more to lose. But uh, cyber attacks are are certainly within the realm of possibility, and of course, uh, the data sharing um, of these big companies. So uh, takeaways from there is, given how much we use Google and how much we use these applications. Make sure you're staying informed on the data that they have on us. Um, we need to find a way to simplify that terms of service so we know just what we're agreeing to, uh, agreeing to. And if all this scares you too much, find a way to migrate to a different social media platform. I think, to be honest with you, making like a prediction in the next like 5, 10, 15 years, I think Facebook is, is going to become a little bit obsolete. I mean, if you remember growing up in the 90s, the beginning of the internet boom, we used to have AOL, and uh, after that, MySpace was pretty big. I, th I think MySpace just came out that they lost like uh, billions of gigs and files or, 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 you know, from before 2015 or something, so all my stuff's gone. But I think I can see Facebook going along that just with all the bad press they've had about uh, what they're doing with our data and, you know, what happened in the 2016 election with the Russians and how they were presenting information. It doesn't bode well for them. So... Facebook, I would be less concerned about, but definitely in the long run, Google and Amazon um, and Apple. Those are I didn't talk much about Apple, but those are obviously the three largest companies uh, and going to remain so in the future. Lastly, I want to talk about dreams. This is this is one of the topics that I'm extremely uh, passionate about. When I was a kid, I used to read like dream books. I still have my bookshelf in my childhood bedroom. is 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 one of the one of the books is like Why We Sleep. Uh, we you, you know we uh, talked about sleep or we're going to talk about sleep. Um, so 
one of the books is uh, is uh, yeah yeah next week we're gonna talk about sleep um and you know I've I've had books on dream interpretation what the meaning of dreams is uh, why you know why it's important to remember your dreams we did speak about dreaming a little while back in episode five when I had uh, AJ on to talk about lucid dreaming and how to train yourself to lucid dream. I kind of want to take a step back on why we dream in the first place and what your dreams mean. So there are many theories on why we dream, but no one knows definitively for sure. Some some researchers think that dreams have no purpose or meaning and they're nonsensical activities of the sleeping brain. Other people think dreams are necessary for mental, emotional, physical health. Freud, we always talk about Freud, he believed that dreams are an actual window into our subconscious. He believed that dreams reveal our unconscious desires, thoughts, and motivations, and this was how we satisfied our urges and desires that were unacceptable to society. So you may know uh, Freud believes that the id, uh, the ego, and the superego are the major uh, drivers in psychology, and the way that I like to think of it is the id is the part of the brain that, that's kind of like a child that acts without disregard for uh, for anyone else, that sees sees a brownie in the refrigerator and doesn't really, uh, you know, care whose it is, just just thinks, I want that brownie, you know, I, I want to eat that brownie. The ego and the superego are really responsible for putting the id in line. The id is more primitive, instinctive, operates in the pleasure principle. Um, the ego is mediating between the unrealistic id and the external real world. And then the superego is just like the value, the morals and values of society that uh, are kind of imposed upon us. So Freud thinks that dreams are how the id really acts out all those repressed and, and suppressed urges in our daily life. So if, you know, if this is true, what what do our dreams mean? Um, some experts think that there's no connection whatsoever between our unconscious dreams and our real emotions and thoughts. People will say their dreams are just strange stories that don't relate to normal life. Other people will, will say that dreams may reflect our own underlying thoughts and feelings, our deepest desires, fears, and concerns, especially recurring dreams or nightmares. And a lot of people actually think they have come up with their best ideas while dreaming. So dreaming in that sense might be a conduit of creativity. And then there are dreams that act as manifestations of anxieties or stressors. Um, nightmares, obviously, very common. And there are certainly images and symbols and dreams which scientists do have an idea of what they may mean. But the issue with this, guys, is it's all subjective. There's no way scientifically that I can tell you, you know, if you dream about losing your teeth, it definitely means that you're afraid of getting old and being unattractive to others. There's no proof of that. Whereas, you know, if you take a blood test, you'll be able to tell if you have uh, a disease. But the scientific community does have ideas on certain symbols and dreams. And understanding these symbols may help you decode what your dreams mean. So I want to go through some of these. And I'm going to keep, I'm going to uh, include a link um, to all of them online so you can kind of. Uh, do a little more digging if you're interested in this. So being chased is the, one of the most common dream symbols in all cultures. It means you're feeling threatened. So you know you, you should reflect on who's chasing you in the dream and whether this person's a possible threat in real life. Exams, I'm sure you guys have had dreams where you're showing up to an exam uh, and you haven't taken the class or you haven't studied. That's maybe one of my most common dreams. I actually had a recurring nightmare 
for like a period of a year or two where every time I would go to sleep, I would dream that it was the final for this math class. I'm getting like like freaked out thinking about it. It was the, the final for this math class and I had skipped, oh my God, like PTSD. I had skipped every single lecture class and I had the final and I was totally unprepared and freaking out. I've had that same dream, like, like had the dream, then paused it when I woke up, then resumed it, paused it for like a year or two. And exams can signify self-evaluation. Um, so you're, you're inspecting, maybe inspecting a part of your life. It could also just signify anxiety about something in particular. Um, falling is another very common dream symbol. Relates to our anxieties about letting go, losing control, or somehow failing after a success. Hair has significant ties with sexuality, Freud says. Abundant hair may symbolize virility. But cutting hair off in a dream shows a loss of libido. Um, hair loss could also uh, be a literal f- fear of going bald. Um, if you're killing in your dreams, if you're killing someone, it doesn't mean you're a murderer. It represents your desire to kill a part of your personality. It could also be hostility towards a particular person. Um, hands. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're seeing your hands in your dreams or if they're tied up, it might represent feelings of futility. Washing your hands might express guilt. And looking closely at your hands, as we mentioned in episode five, is a great way to become lucid if you're looking to, to lucid dream. Nudity is another really common dream symbol. Uh, in dreams where you're naked or others are naked, it's about revealing your true self to others. You might feel vulnerable and exposed to others, so showing off your your nudity might express sexual urges or a desire to be recognized and appreciated by others. I mentioned teeth before. Losing your teeth is a very, very, very common, maybe one of the most common uh, symbols and things that take place in dreams. Dreams where you're losing your teeth might mark a fear of getting old, um, as I mentioned. Water, water is, is, is another common theme that people see in their dreams, symbolizes the unconscious mind, according to Freudians. Calm pools of water reflect inner peace, but a choppy ocean could suggest turmoil and unease. Um, these are just a few of the symbols. There are dozens and dozens of them, uh, so definitely worth checking out. And again, it's not an exact science, but there is something to be said for uh, for some of these symbols as recurring themes. If you're always dreaming about having an exam or missing a flight um, or you know being trapped I think that there's definitely underlying anxieties that you can explore there and that's part of the reason why I think it's important in general to remember your dreams is a lot of times we get so distracted and so bogged down in the day-to-day life uh, in our work or our school or uh, the minutia of what's happening that we don't really have time to reflect on how we are. You know, someone will ask, how are you? And you'll just think, oh, you know, I'm fine. I'm getting by just another Monday. You know, I'm busy, yada, yada. But you don't really think, how are how are you really doing emotionally at your core? And if you want to know how you're doing, look at your dreams. What are you dreaming about? Are you dreaming about beautiful fields and and the beach and and calm waters and peace and tranquility or are you dreaming that you're up on stage at a talent show and you haven't prepared an act and you're freaking the fuck out because that's a nice window into your emotional well-being uh 
And I mentioned before, and I'm going to continue to mention, I think reflection is a very important aspect of a good balanced life. And it's something most people don't do enough. So just remembering your dreams is a nice way to reflect. So just to make you guys feel comfortable, um, you know, with me and, and, you know, show that I, I'm okay opening up with you guys. I'll read a couple of dreams because I've been recording my dreams in multiple dream journals since, let's check when this goes back to 20, about 2015. So about three or four years. Uh, and I do it exactly for the reason that, that I mentioned, uh, to reflect and to understand myself better. And all, obviously, I'm, I'm interested in dreams. And also because it's just fascinating, the stuff that we dream about. So I dreamt. So I did, as you guys know, I did acting for a little bit, um, just just a little bit of a couple, you know, small films and um, things of that nature, uh, a couple of comedy shows. So in one of my dreams from, this is October of 2017, uh, I dreamt that I had a comedy show performance at 7.45 p.m. I overslept. I woke up in my apartment at 11.30 p.m. I sprinted to the theater and jumped into the end of the comedy show. The play ended and I was humiliated. The directors tell me that one of the people from another performance jumped in to take my part. And I woke up the next morning, the day of my comedy show, just petrified, but thanking the heavens that it was just a dream. Because let's face it, the dreams, it's very hard to distinguish between a dream or between reality. In another dream, this was actually the next day, I dreamt that I was the Secretary of State for the U.S. and I was walking into a federal building with a giant suitcase full of, um, I don't know, tens of thousands of dollars in cash. So I, I wheeled around this suitcase with me. Um, I went through the metal detectors and uh, told the security guards that I went through the wrong detector. Uh, security guard found out uh, that I was the Secretary of State and told one of his coworkers to give me coffee, caffeine, of course. I'm the president of dreams. Um, and that was, a, uh, that was probably one of the more pleasant dreams I've had. Um, let me see what else I can tell you here. In another dream from the next month, uh, I was driving my, my little blue sedan with my sisters and two others going really fast. I did a crazy spin and the car flew into the air and came down. The car lit on fire for a second uh, and, and the blue paint disappeared in the middle. The car was blue in the front and black and white in the middle. I tried to fix the car, uh, but a very overweight person sat on the hood and crashed uh, the gas tank. In, in the dream, the gas tank was in the hood. So the, the fat person fell into the gas tank um, Holly, my sister tried to fix it, but she failed, so I was a little upset with her, and eventually I called uh, AAA to fix the car, so I don't know if you guys can decode that one for me with the the, the items in your toolbox that you've been learning. Uh, I had another dream. I'm going to read like one or two more, guys, because <laughs> I don't know if this is enjoyable or if this is obnoxious. I had another dream where I got into my car, and President Trump came in to drive, I was shocked that he drove himself around. So I took a, a photo, a covert Snapchat from the back. And he was coming with me and I guess someone else to the hospital to visit some people. He was, he was actually wearing hospital scrubs. So President Trump dressing up for the occasion. So we go to the hospital and there's a crowd of people in the cafeteria that recognize him. And 
a, a kind of like a, a, an angry mob started to form around President Trump and myself. And so I, I kind of became fearful for my security and his security. One guy came up and, and tried to fight him. And regardless of my feelings towards Trump, uh, I, I could tell he was very scared. So I didn't, uh, I, 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 I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to let him get, get killed in the angry mob. So that was another dream. Uh, let me see. I'll do one more here. One more. Uh, let's see. I was at a performance by Ariana Grande. Uh, I left my sweatshirt at the concert. I looked at my phone. I happened to have Ariana Grande's phone number because I knew her before she became famous. I texted her for my sweatshirt and she replied right away that she gave it to someone. I went to this person to retrieve my sweatshirt, but it was the wrong one. So <laughs> I um I don't I don't really know what what any of this means. Uh I don't even know if those dreams that I shared were indicative, like were re- representative of the dreams that I usually have. The dreams I have are usually very dark and anxiety ridden. Um, but Maybe you get like a little bit of flavor for what occupies my headspace. Um, I will say one of the other benefits of remembering your dreams is dreams are creative. Like some of the dreams I've had, you could make into a major motion picture because it's ideas and plots and things that you wouldn't think about in your everyday life. Like I, I wish I had like a better example for you, but um, you know, you'll be some of my dreams. I'll be walking in the at a carnival with my sister, and then. Uh, We'll get like sprayed by a bunch of police officers with with a fire hose, and then we'll be like eating pizza that's three seventy five. Uh, like a moment later, it's just nonsensical and and interesting. And really, if you're, I would say, if you're like a writer or you're someone who works in the creative field, getting in touch with your dreams might be a good way to get inspiration. So that's that. And before I mention, you guys might be wondering. How the hell do I remember my dreams? Let's say you, you, you're with me and you want to remember your dreams. You want that reflection. You want that inspiration. How do you do it? I think it's important to briefly mention the four stages of sleep before I can let you know how you remember your dreams. First, there's stage one, the light transitional sleep stage where drowsiness begins. Stage two is the more stable sleep where the chemicals are secreted that make it difficult to be awoken. Stage three is deep sleep. This is where the growth hormone and other things are released in your body. And stage four is REM sleep, rapid eye movement. This is where your dreams occur. So if you want to remember your dreams, it's best to wake up at the conclusion of an REM cycle. A complete cycle lasts around 90 to 100 minutes. You guys have probably heard this before. If you wake up at the end of that cycle or in 90 minute, 100 minute increments, you're more likely to remember your dream. And on that note, it's best to be woken up quickly rather than slowly. If you wake up quickly, that alarm goes off, boom, and you, and you thrust up, you know, like a like a whack-a-mole, like a like a, a spring, whatever. You're able to immediately recall what was taking place in your last REM cycle, as opposed to being woken up slowly and groggy and lethargic, and you hit the snooze and you hit the snooze again and again, and the dream just drifts away from you. It's pretty intuitive, but waking up quickly and right away—that's when you are most likely to remember your dreams. So as as a best practice, as soon as your alarm goes off in the morning, before you can even hit snooze, jot down your dream. And on that note, the number one way to remember your dreams, keep a dream journal. 
Keep a dream journal. Invest in it. I'm sure you have a, a little notebook uh, you know, hanging around or buy one for 99 cents. Keep a dream journal next to your bed on your nightstand in order to write down your dreams as soon as you wake up. As I mentioned, your dreams are freshest in the first moments of consciousness, so don't let them drift away from you. Keep a pen or a pencil, a pen and notebook next to your bed and kind of get into the habit of jotting down what you remember as soon as you wake up, even if it's just written in chicken scratch and non-complete sentences. I promise you're going to be able to piece it together and it, it'll be really cool like later on in the day or the next day to look back on what you jotted down and to remember what your dreams are. Don't, you know, don't rely on your memory to rely on your mind because, you know, if you wake up at, at 6.45 a.m. and then at 3, 2 p.m. you're having lunch, you're like, oh, what did I dream about? I guarantee you've, you've had so many layers of stimuli and, and different um, things that, that have been occupying your headspace that that dream is going to be far, far away. We have a lot of things we're expected to remember in our daily lives. So writing it down is the number one way to remember your dreams. And writing it down, I mean with a pen and paper. Don't rely on your cell phones to jot down your dreams, um, in part because the process of mechanically writing down your dreams will aid your memory and your ability to recall the dreams, as opposed to just typing it on a screen. Not to mention all that blue light. I mean, that, that's terrible for your eyes and your brain, uh, as, as uh, we've discussed and will continue to discuss. So use the pen and paper. And by doing that, you're able to remember your dreams. You're able to to uh, interpret them, to analyze them, and to reflect on how you're feeling and be inspired by uh, the creativity that comes with dreaming. So we've explored a ton of uh, really fascinating things on this pod. We, we dove deep into uh, dating, into the first date, into the conversations, the ways to be creative in uh, how you interact with someone um, and you know how to make a great impression and stand out from the pack. Um, we also talked about being mindful of technology and the things that uh, technology companies are doing with your information uh, and obviously taping up that webcam to make sure um, you know nobody's spying on you or, or looking at you when you're not aware of it. And with dreaming, I mean, getting a sense of, of why we're dreaming um, and sussing out what the meaning is behind all these symbols, all these recurring dreams, uh, and keeping that dream journal is definitely the key to uh, tying everything together and getting the most out of your dreams. Next week, uh, we have a uh, very interesting episode planned. I'm going to be bringing on a guest uh, for the first time in a couple episodes to talk about uh, some issues I've, I've been hoping we could get to uh, for a little while. Um, first, we'll be talking about education. What are the biggest issues plaguing our education system today and what we should be teaching kids in schools today that we're just not doing? We'll be taking a look at sleep, piggybacking off the discussion on dreams. What do we know about why we need to sleep and how much sleep do we really need every night? And finally, next week, We'll be getting into politics. Uh, I know that the politics segment from episode 10 was a lot of fun for me, and I hope it was educational and informative for you. Uh, my friend and I, my guest, will be talking about the front runners for the Democratic nomination in 2020 and what the Democratic Party needs to do to unseat President Trump. This has been an amazing episode. I know it's a little bit longer, uh, coming in at just an hour and 15. I, I think we might look to... Uh, maybe have a couple episodes on the longer side. 
I know we're, we're at about an hour sometimes, but um, depending on the conversation, I know the question answer segment went a little longer today, but I uh, really appreciate all the questions and the comments that I received. Please keep sending those emails to nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com, nervoushabitspodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram if you haven't already at nervoushabitspodcast. Would really appreciate if you reviewed the uh, pod on Apple Podcasts. It would mean a lot to me to get that, uh, that feedback. Thank you so much for listening. Can't wait to next week and stay nervous guys take care